Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, leading political commentator Annabelle Crabb talks to award-winning investigative journalist Louise Milligan about her new and deeply troubling new book, Witness, a searing examination for the power imbalance in our legal system and the experience of being a witness. A quick reminder, as this is a recording of an event that was held live over the internet, there's been some impact on the sound quality of this episode. But now, here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. Welcome, welcome to this very important event. Before we get going, though, we need to acknowledge that this week is NARDOC week. This is a week that celebrates the culture and the achievements of the Indigenous owners of our land. And wherever we are in Australia, it's incredibly important and vital that we understand the stories and the song lines that make up this beautiful country. At the moment, I am speaking from the Kulin Nation. On behalf of each and every one of you out there, I want to acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging and I want to say to all of you how fortunate I live, I feel to live in a land like this and how sorry I am that this is land that has not been ceded. My name is Chris Gordon. I am the Programming Manager for Readings. It is my pleasure now to introduce you to someone who literally needs no introduction at all unless you have been hidden away somewhere in the middle of Australia. This is a woman that is on our television screens, that's on our radio, she's in our columns, she's on our social media, she is everywhere. She is the woman that makes us feel good about being a feminist and baking. She is the woman that makes us feel smart when we discuss what she's been discussing at our dinner parties it's the one and only and really if I did have a drum I would do a drum roll right here and now Annabelle Crabb welcome welcome to this beautiful community hall where you will be discussing witness with Louise over to you Thank you so much for that very, very lovely introduction. I love the idea of being everywhere. It makes me feel a bit like a virus, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, due to sort of unusual circumstances that spiralled out of control uh, after we first talked about doing this event, I'm coming to you from northern New South Wales, where I've been filming today. And uh, so I'm on Bundjalung country, which is pretty Bloody exciting because I've been on the same Gadigal land for most of this year, so it's nice to go for a bit of a wander. Um, but my main job here today is, of course, to introduce to you um, the latest work of the great Louise Milligan. I don't know how there's only one of Louise Milligan. Um, all of us have had a pretty tricky year this year, I think, and um, those uh, who live in Melbourne um, particularly so. I don't want to make anyone feel bad, but like during this lockdown year, Louise has um, written a book, um, uh, perfected home education for her children and uh, composed a Four Corners special that um, is still sort of blazing its way across the sky of Australian politics as we speak. Um, I'm very, very uh, impressed that she's even in an upright position right now, to be honest. Um, but listen, I've known Louise for um, many years. Like me, she is a uh, person who went to law school and did a law degree and an arts degree and then just sort of sneakily slipped out the side door and went and got a cadetship to be a journalist and 
found their true love and calling. Um, Louise is an investigative journalist. She started off at The Australian and has done something that hardly anyone um, does well, uh, which is to be a, a punchy investigative reporter in print and in television. She is a multi-talented uh, broadcaster and writer. But the thing that is truly remarkable about Louise is that she has uh, the biggest heart of anyone I know in journalism, I think, and she never, ever hides it away. She puts it on the line with every story that she investigates. I've seen her at work, the care that she takes with the vulnerable people whose stories she never, ever walks by. And I don't know anyone else in journalism who uh, will stop and help to the degree that Louise will. It's what I most respect about her. You know, of course, of her work, uh, The Cardinal, which is a multi-award winning book. You know of her news breaking um, around the um, trial and accusations against um, uh, George Pell. In the course of that, she has experienced the legal system in a way that um, she had never had before. And it's inflamed in her a curiosity and an urge to tell the story of people who appear before cross-examining cross -examining barristers in court and live through the court experience. What is it to be a witness? Well, Louise has written the book. Sorry for going on, Louise. Are you still awake? Hello. I'm Welcome. Still awake. I'm still awake. Thank you so much for doing this. You're such a beautiful friend and everyone, you know, the reason you are Annabelle everywhere, the new Eddie everywhere. You've oh, taken Eddie. It's like he's yesterday's man. Now it's Annabelle. And that is a happy thing, I must say. Um, but, um, yeah, thanks so much, everyone, for coming um, tonight. Um, I am thrilled to be here. My only, you know, the only thing is I wish I was there with everyone in person because often the book events that I've had are often quite emotional kind of events and a lot of people have a lot of really personal skin in this and um, and while those events are, they take a lot out of me in lots of ways, they also inspire me because the people that I write about and speak to inspire me so much. Um, I am a person who wears my heart on my sleeve, as Annabelle says. I'm a bit of a, a bit of a crybaby sometimes. Um, but um, I guess if you you can really feel the stories that you do, people know that you care, and um, you can you know that, or they know that you're going to look after them. So um, yeah, it's. It's sometimes a tiring way to be, but it's also a really rewarding way to be. Um, and well, it's maybe a bit of a crybaby, Lou, but you're also um, one of the most resistant to pressure and stress and um, and intimidation of any journal I know. I wonder if you could start us off by. Um, I think one of the best ways for you to evoke what this book is about is just for you to give us a quick blast of the prologue because it tells you exactly what it says on the tin of this book, which is what does it feel like to be a witness in an aggressive court encounter? Sure. Prologue. You don't sleep the night before that first day in court. 
You spend it tossing and turning, bathed in a slick sweat you have never felt before, glistening like a pallid chicken about to be shoved into the oven and roasted. You vomit. Your heart feels so close to the palm of the hand that's clasped to your chest that it might just jump on out and tumble off the bed, still pulsing in the moonlight. Your mind spins processing and reprocessing processing questions you might be asked, retorts you might deliver, then remorse that those retorts might sound too much. Don't be an angry ant, one of the lawyers had said. That's what he wants. Angry ants are always the worst witnesses. You think of the others who are about to give their evidence, how tormented they must be, of their poor families struggling to know how to make it okay for them, and you think of those in their premature graves. You cry. You get up stupidly early as there is no point lying in that stupid bed. As the shower water pelts down, you will it to wash away the fear and the signs of insomnia. And then you get out, blow dry your hair within an inch of its life and look in the mirror. And somehow in that moment, a deathly calm descends over the room like an opium cloud. Your heart slows down to a dull thrum. This man is not going to fuck with me. And that is your mantra. That is your prayer as you make your way to the Melbourne Magistrates Court that March morning. This man is not going to fuck with me. Although he did a little bit, didn't he, though, Louise? Because, <laughs> you know, your account of being in the witness box having never, to my knowledge, been a serious um, criminal accused before you had been a defendant in anything, um, notable or not on my records anyway, you were called in to be a witness because you were um, the witness of first report for some of the um, complainants in one of the Pell cases. And so you were the target for the opening of that defence, really. If you could be discredited, then that would set up the case for the defence very well. So you were up against Robert Richter, who is, of course, um, a very well-known QC. And your account of that day in the dock is incredibly harrowing, partly, I think, because you were um, so hyper-alert to defend the people who had confided in you, but also you were thinking all the time of how much worse this would be if you were, in fact, a survivor undertaking that cross-examination. Absolutely. And I have to say, after going through that experience, I mean, it was a politicising moment for me. I can't put it any other way. It was so intense. Um, it went all day and he never let up for a second. And, you know, I totally understand that he had to prove his client's case beyond reasonable doubt. Um, his client had the presumption of innocence and he had to give him a robust defence. He had a big reputation to, to uh, protect um, both his clients and his own and he was going to do whatever he could to make that happen. Um, but I just felt that there was, in my opinion, from what I saw, a lack of 
decency, courtesy and just humanity in what happened. Now, I understand that as a journalist I was pretty much roadkill, you know. Um, I was someone who I remember being told beforehand by someone who had met with him um, that he, I, the key to getting this case up was to destroy Louise Milligan. And I don't know whether he told this person knowing that they might tell me and it was a way of kind of trying to rattle me or not. Um, but it, it, he had my role in the whole thing as so much more central than it was. <laughs> I was there because I was the first person that one of the men who made a complaint about the Cardinal had told in the world, so the witness of first complaint. Um, but it, that soon just expanded into trying to mine all of the other men that I had met, like their cases for reasonable doubts. But, you know, it was just relentless and it was just like never letting me finish an answer almost unless it was a yes or a no and you know at times it moved into quite sexist territory um there was a time when he accused me of flirting with a complainant who was a pretty vulnerable man and who I was just being kind to and to be honest the the messages that that he was referring to were no different to the sort of messages that I would send to a mother or, you know, a woman who was a rape victim or, you know, anything, any person that I was trying to be kind to. It was kindness. And the fact that I was just sort of, you know, reduced to this sort of sexualized stereotype I found really inappropriate. Um, I felt completely alone. Um, and it was very, very rare that the Crown Prosecutor actually intervened. He did intervene at times and, and in fact, at one point he referred to um, the Evidence Act improper questioning, which is basically um, there to um, keep barristers from going too far with witnesses in the witness box. But one of the components of improper questioning is about tone and I kind of felt like the tone all the way through was belittling and harassing and they're the things that that it, it replies uh, that it refers to and um I just remember like it was like this out-of-body experience really and the whole time I was trying to sort of sit up ramrod straight and trying to keep this sort of neutral pleasant calm courtroom face and um and to try not to focus too much on him and to address, if I had an issue, to address it to the magistrate, um, you know, and I, I, I kept saying things like, because he, he was always trying to get a yes or a no, and there were so many answers that weren't best, or so many questions that weren't best answered by a yes or a no, but he would just sort of like, yes or no, yes or no, yes or no. It was like this sort of thing. And, you know, I would sort of turn to the magistrate and say, I'm terribly sorry, Your Honour, but this question is not best answered by a yes or a no, and that would just drive him completely bananas. And, um, and you know, there was a section where for 90 minutes I was drilled on the finer points of anal anatomy and it was this big thing about the anus, the sphincter, the rectum, and 
I don't know, like I went to a Catholic school. I don't even really know what the difference between those are. I just like I've never thought about those things before. And he was just, he just had this kind of cantankerous schoolmaster tone and that I was just like this, you know, errant sort of naughty schoolgirl. That was the way that I was treated all the way through as a professional, you know, as a journalist and as someone who, you know, has a law degree and has for a long time covered courts um, as a journalist and had the whole ABC behind me, had senior management of the ABC in the room and also um, my publisher, Louise Adler, and my friends and my family and I didn't have a substance abuse problem, you know, that came from my childhood trauma. I didn't have any of those things. And yet I was so wrung out by this experience. Um, it was, I remember saying actually, and I, I say this towards the end of the book to um, a, a barrister that later represented me and who I sort of interviewed for the book to sort of get his perspective because he had done these cases. Um, I said to him that it was the worst day of my life apart from when I um, identified my first husband's body in the morgue. Now, that seems really extreme, but it's true. It was so awful. And I just, sorry. I was going to say, I mean, you've you've covered so many of these cases and you've walked with um, victims of sexual assault, survivors of sexual assault, and you've seen these courtroom scenes of cross-examination. What did you, I mean, and after your own experience, you went out and actively looked forensically at what happens in these cross-examinations, what is the common factor? The common factor in the cross-examinations? Yeah. I think that's a, it's hard to distill it down to one thing, like there's not one factor, but the common factor in the ones that I think are done badly, that's probably a better an easier question to answer and that is the lack of empathy um because okay I was there as a as a sort of um a witness who had sort of been inveigled into the process through being a journalist but these people who are complainants of sexual crimes are there to complain about the worst thing that ever happened to them in their life a lot of the time about you know being raped as an eight-year-old by some creepy Christian brother or, um, you know, losing your virginity to someone in an alleyway who, who, who you know, stole it. Um, it's incredibly re-traumatising for them having to do what has to be done, which is to rake through and go in forensic detail into what, happened so that we can determine whether or not it really did happen that's unavoidable they still have to relive it but it's just this sort of bullying sort of tone that I think is really unnecessary and you know I spoke to lots of complainants who said to me that this was 
worse than the original offence or it was as bad as the original offence. And that, again, people, especially barristers, find that really hard to believe. Like they cannot understand that. How could it be worse? But it's because they're not only being re-traumatised, it also echoes what they might have already experienced in the sense of they were always made to feel that they wouldn't be believed. That was their big fear. And especially when you're talking about historical crime, you know, they held on to it, kept it inside their little hearts for so long because no one's going to believe me. And so to have that acted out in that sort of forum in such an extreme way, in a way that no one will have ever spoken to them in their lives, we don't in any other forum speak to people like that. I mean, the closest thing I can think of is Parliament. But Parliament, you know, you're not talking about penal rape or something like that. You know, you're talking about politics. It's robust and it's debate and, you know, people kind of throw insults at each other. But this is um, this is talking about a trauma and it just... After that day, you know, I woke up the next morning and I couldn't get out of bed. Like I just lay in the bed. And it wasn't like I was sort of going over in my mind what he'd said. You know, I wasn't sort of dissecting it all and thinking, oh, I hated how he did this or whatever. It was just this physical trauma, this thrum. And and I just couldn't move. Like I couldn't get up to get a glass of water. And... I know I, that's when I decided that I would write about this one day, like when I sort of felt strong enough and when this whole ordeal of this case, which, by the way, the book is not about the Pell trial at all. Um, when it was over, I would write about this and I would speak to people and I'd find out their experiences and I'd get the transcripts because the thing about these cases is they're very often heard so-called in in camera or the complainants evidence is held in camera um, which means that no journalists are allowed into the court now that is supposedly to protect them and to protect their privacy but I sort of feel that court reporters serve a very important function and that is transparency of the legal system and I always thought with um, the complainants in that case, but it also in every other case where it's in camera, that um, what did he do to them, you know? What, what happened to those people? Who was looking out for them? And I, I think, unfortunately, often the Crown has a sort of a slightly different purpose. It's not to look after them. It's to prove a case beyond reasonable doubt. And often they will just act, actually it can be in the Crown's interests for the complainant to get a bit of a rough time because if the complainant cries and feels like a real person, then they're more of a believable witness. The jury is going to respond to them more, whereas if they're wooden, you know, it was like the Lindy Chamberlain thing, you know, that people didn't think that Lindy Chamberlain or they thought that she must have killed her child because she wasn't displaying the appropriate emotional response. So because of that, they can get beaten up, basically. Louise, um, one of the most fascinating parts of the book for me was just your um, description of the institution of the bar and 
almost the industrial conditions of barristers and how that contributes to the patterns of behaviour. Can you just give us a little insight into that? Because it's not something you see deconstructed all that often and I found it absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I found it really fascinating as well, I have to say. Um, one of the things that I really wanted to do from the start was get an insight into the psychology of the Defence Council and the prosecutors because I thought if this just comes across as just victims, 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 then they're not going to listen and I want them to listen. You know, I want them to understand that I empathise with their position as well. Anyway, I spoke to a lot of really high-profile, amazing um, defence counsel who were often quite candid and who talked about the fact that they just sort of put away their own trauma. They don't deal with it. There's no sort of forum for it. And actually it's kind of like sort of the idea that because they work for themselves and it's all about reputation, it's like they don't want to get this image that they've kind of lost their marbles and lose their practice. So they just hide it all away and the way they cope with it a lot of the time, they said to me, was by drinking. Um, so they go for a drink with their friends in the, at the bar and they unload about the awful things that they have seen and heard. Um, and, you know, a few of them admitted to me that they had drinking problems and that other, like, they talked about one very high-profile barrister, criminal barrister who, who um, drinks half a bottle of scotch a day and the prosecutor who told me about it was saying that he starts drinking to get him to the place where he can do these cross-examinations. So I thought that was really fascinating. So to what extent do you think this phenomenon of, you know, moving in and trying to just actually dislodge a witness, actually knock them off their centre, actually have them flailing and questioning their own recollections and their own, you know, worthiness to give evidence and so on. To what extent do you think that that's a function of um, the kind of consensus of the profession and to what extent is it um, due to the infrastructure of the court system? I think a lot of it is to do with the consensus of the, the profession. I think a lot of them feel... <sighs> They feel like they're doing this really noble thing um, and they've got a bit of a siege mentality because they know that there's not sympathy for, you know, a recidivist Christian brother, you know, who's raped schoolboys, you know, that they know that, that no one's going to feel sorry for that person. And, and they take very seriously, and I remember this at law school and you'll remember this at law school, it was really, you know, the sort of seen as the kind of the pinnacle and actually thinking about victims was seen as a bit sort of tabloid um, and expected, you know. Um, and I think that because they're doing this and because they're sort of picking it all apart very forensically all the time, you know, it's not too hard to find a reasonable doubt when you're talking about one person's word against another. There's a bottom drawer of reasonable doubts and they reach for it and they find the tried and true inconsistencies in the evidence. What often happens is, for instance, a complainant gives a slightly different account to the police 
than he or she does to the court because memory is a fickle thing and, you know, it, even though they remember the key things well, it's sort of like, well, what colour underwear was he wearing and where was he standing in the room and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And sometimes that gets a little bit mixed up along the way and it's very difficult to hold on to those memories in a way that stands up to that kind of questioning. And so they get to the point where, and, and, and the other thing is, the other thing is, sometimes people will not remember things and so feel like they have to fill that with that vacuum with a white lie and the white lie brings the whole thing undone when in fact they were telling the truth about the essential thing. And, and so that means that um, the, the defence counsel have, a lot of them have got this idea that there are all these people running around who make this stuff up, right? And all of the international research, which was tended to the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, uh, shows that the number of false complaints are extraordinarily low and largely confined to people who are floridly mentally ill or um, in family court cases where it's parent against parent. So um, they... But they have this idea that there is, you know, there are all these people out there that are doing this. And, you know, I would ask them for examples and they'd give, I remember there was one, he gave me an example of, oh, there was this, this father and, you know, he, one of the girls made up a complaint and, um, you know, the father used to beat them senseless, but he didn't rape them and we could prove that. And <laughs> I was like that's your great example, you know, of someone making something up. You know that this person beat these children senseless, but, you know, one of the facts around the sort of the sexual stuff didn't quite fit. So, you know, it, anyway. But the thing is that they they do have trauma and they once you sort of, get beneath the surface they will admit that and I think that unrecognized untreated trauma actually leads to them not being able to empathize as well as they might otherwise with these people. Louise one of the most um just horrible parts of the book I guess shocking I think um comes much later on and you 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 talk about a bunch of different um survivors and their um courtroom experiences but the one that takes you most by surprise during the narrative is the moment where a young boy 15 year old Paris Street walks into his witness room to give video evidence and be cross-examined by the very same Robert Richter. And he's thinking this should be pretty straightforward. I know exactly what I'm talking about and what happened to me. I can't see this being too much of an issue. And a full day later in the witness stand, he leaves absolutely broken up. Can you tell us... Um, about that circumstance and um, and what it exposed in terms of the lack of preparation of witnesses to deal with this sort of thing. Absolutely. Um, so 
I had the unusual experience with Paris because he was cross-examined in the magistrate's court, there was no transcript, but there was audio. So I actually got to hear the cross-examination. And having been cross-examined myself by the same person, I was really curious to see what it was like. And, you know, bearing in mind that, excuse me, Paris was only 15 at the time, I was absolutely shocked to hear the exact same tone, that it never let up, that it was always this kind of sneering, disbelieving, I can't think of any other word but bullying tone. And Paris had gone along there. He was in the remote witness facility across the road from the court. He was the victim of a, um, a groomer. So he hadn't been physically abused. Um, but um, he, he really believed that he was doing his civic duty by coming forward because he was concerned that this man who had done disgusting things, sent him disgusting um, text messages and just said revolting things to him, um, he was an athletics coach, that he, if, if Paris didn't come forward like this, this man might actually do something to a child. And the case was very strong because there was there were all these messages and, you know, it was he just thought, oh, well, I'll go along, I'll do what I have to do and, you know, and then it'll be over with and it'll be disgusting having to talk about this but it'll be, but it'll be fine. And um, no one really explained the court process to Paris at all. He had a police prosecutor who did the sort of best job he could under the circumstances but it didn't give him a heads up of what was about to happen, that this man is going to sort of try and tear you to shreds, really. And um, so he was shown a, a diorama of the courtroom, like here's, this is where this one sits and this is where that one sits, but that was pretty much it. So when that screen snapped on and this relentless barrage began, it was, it was like, little baby 15-year-old Paris, like his whole little world came crashing down. He was a boy that I could relate to. I just want to tell this story because he was he was a straight-A kind of student. He was a really nice boy from a nice middle-class family at a, a private Catholic school and everything had gone reasonably well for Paris so far in life and he thought if you do the right thing, good things will happen to you. And I remember feeling exactly the same way at that age. And so this just tore everything down for him. And when the scream snapped off, he just dissolved in sobs. And he's still got punch marks in his bedroom wall five years down the track from when he went home that night with his mum. And the book also outlines, of course, you know, what happens when, in Paris's um, case, his school community, which is where he'd be been offended against, kind of united to some extent to support uh, the accused, um, which is an extraordinary um, thing to, to witness and to, to read about and consider. And it made me think that, you know, one of your specialties, I think, as a reporter is examining institutions right like and not backing down when you get kind of bite back from those institutions whether it's the catholic church um or the bar 
uh, or indeed St Kevin's, you know, the school. Um, and I feel, given that we don't have uh, even 10 minutes left, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your recent tangling with another institution um, in Australia, which is the Parliament of Australia. Um, what similarities do you see um, in terms of siege mentality, banding together and rejecting allegations of faults and misconduct in that institution? Uh, it's very similar. I mean, when you're talking about ministers of the Crown uh, and relationships consensual or otherwise, in, in, in this case consensual, with um, much younger staffers who have very little power in that equation and are in an institution that is, you know, people talk about in politics, if you want a friend in politics, get a dog, you know. So the staffers don't know who to go to. And, you know, we had in our Four Corners program on Monday night an example of um, Sarah Hanson-Young, the Green Senator, talking about a young Liberal staffer who she said had had a relationship with Christian Porter, the Attorney-General, where she just couldn't get out of it and she felt caught and she didn't know where to go because the institution is full of people that can't be trusted and are watching each other's backs. She couldn't go to someone from her own party um, because she didn't know what would happen to her career. She couldn't go to someone from the Labor Party because they would, you know, cause problem for her minister. Um, she felt that parliamentary services in the Department of Finance, she couldn't, um, you know, well, I assume couldn't go to them. Um, so she went to a Green senator who has a reputation for, you know, um, talking about, sexism in Parliament and, um, and you know, it was a really quite emotional interview actually. Like I haven't really seen Sarah Hansen-Young like that before but um, it was fascinating in the lead-up to the story um, how the forces corralled to try to shut down the story. No one answered any of our questions. We gave those ministers two and a half weeks notice of the story. And um, that is unheard of, as you know. I mean, newspaper journalists would give them a few hours and, you know, deal with it. Um, they didn't answer any of our questions. They fired off a whole lot of off-the-record emails in which they tried to emotionally manipulate us and threaten us. And then how, can you, how can you, in response to an on-the-record question, demand that your reply be off-the-record? How does that work? How do you navigate your way through that little it's, minefield? It's really, really difficult. But the thing that got me was rather than navigate that at all, instead what they did was go above our heads and they didn't just go to the to the executive producer of four corners they didn't just go to the director of news they went to the managing director and the board um and tried to editorially interfere in the national broadcaster this is the sort of institutional 
power that you come up against when you try to expose this sort of behaviour. Um, and it is quite analogous to uh, what I've been looking at for my book because people, young women who are in these dreadful situations feel caught. And for months, I worked on that story for five months and I have been speaking to women all the way through who have been wanting to come forward publicly but are afraid of coming forward publicly and what will happen to them. So similar to the court system where so many complainants of sexual crimes never come forward because they just don't think that it's going to be good for their health and for their reputation and for their family. And that's exactly the situation in politics. Now, when you look at politics, these are the people who are making the laws that govern the rest of us. They should act in a way that's absolutely beyond reproach, with absolute integrity. They should answer questions from the flagship current affairs program for the national broadcaster. They should um, be open to scrutiny and transparency. And I found their responses to, to what we asked just depressing, a depressing insight into the way that this institution handles these issues. What just is like St Kevin's, very similar. Oh, I, I, just, I just want to tell one little anecdote there because I remember... The weekend before our St Kevin's story went to air, the um, the principal who had not answered any of our questions and did very similar things to what has happened here, although they didn't, he didn't go over our heads. Um, he he put a, a poem on the on the school's website, you know, lie low to the wall until the bitter weather passes, and you know, the bitter weather just ended up engulfing him. He didn't realise that you can't just wait it out and hope that you'll win the PR battle. Well, not if you've got journalists who are not willing to give up. So, I mean, in the case of St Kevin's things did change, right? Like you write quite movingly about what happened when the story went to air, that you were not sure how the school community would react to it. You had been shocked by the extent to which senior figures at the school had locked in behind this athletics coach. Um, and you had your answer, right? Like something did change. And Absolutely. I wonder if you draw any comfort from that instance, if you could explain what happened, but also then um, tell me whether you feel optimistic about other institutions. Well, it was quite astonishing what happened because the weekend before that story went to air, the Four Corners, the poor person who answers the phone at Four Corners was being bombarded by all these mothers saying, how can you do this to our sons? They're going to be spat on, on the trains if my son is shown in this story I, um if his face is shown I'm gonna sue you you know etc 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 it was absolute pandemonium and then when the story came out we actually had the, some of the same mothers ringing up to apologize and the community actually of very sort of upwardly mobile parents actually started banding together to get rid of the headmaster who had written um, a um, 
a reference for Paris's um, perpetrator and had hidden that and thought he was going to get away with it because it's this lowly case in the magistrate's court and, you know, it's a closed court and no one ever heard about it and, you know, that'll be the end of that and this kid's never going to come forward. Well, he underestimated Paris Street. You know, there was a fire in that young man's belly and he was determined that his story be told and Paris made change. I mean, this this is when I get all emotional full about things and get a bit Oprah Winfrey, but he made change in that community. Um, the entire leadership team of the school was gone within a week. A, a whole bunch of teachers who did not value safety and child protection were gone. And now for the first time in St Kevin's history, a female principal is about to start. I have great optimism for that community and, you know, there are so many beautiful young men that we spoke to for that story and young women as well, not from St Kevin's, and um, and so many beautiful teachers who are helping me behind the scenes who really care about those boys. So, you know, things can change if you are dogged and, and the big lesson that I learned from that was we had lots of people who in that community um, were taking risks by coming forward. We had one man, Patrick Noonan, who's a barrister, whose son had started at St Kevin's two weeks before the story went to air. I mean, that is massive. But he felt he had to speak out about the truth, about what had happened behind the scenes. And Patrick and so many of those people, they are just my heroes and it makes me, you know, it was a good lesson for the for the next story that I've just done. You know that sometimes um, you don't don't underestimate people. Don't think that oh there are all these you know barriers stopping them from talking. Um, you know people will stand up and 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 tell their truth for the right reasons. We just saw it with Kathleen Foley, the barrister who appeared in the um, in the. Uh, inside the Canberra bubble story and also with um, Rochelle Miller, you know, the, the staffer who spoke about what happened with Alan Tudge and so on. You know, these people really just, it's that Paul Keating line where sometimes you've just got to stand in the middle of the traffic and invite them to mow you down, you know, and that's kind of, as an investigative journalist, the, the position that you're often in and sometimes that the people who you feature are in as well. But my goodness, when you can get it right, you make change. And, you know, as a baby journalist, that's that's why we get into this. But we we get into this because we've got the ability not to change the whole world, but to change little parts of the world. Um, and to make some people's lives better. Well, you're right, Louise, this book is um, full of heroes. A big shout-out to Paris's friend, Ned, who's the most self-possessed, wise and staunch friend I think I've read about in the book for a while. Um, but, yeah, full of um, quiet people who've surprised themselves and others by taking a giant stand. Um, but, of course, for them to be able to do so... Um, you need a persistent journalist and, um, like I said, you are not one ever to turn away from a story, even if it takes a long time, a lot of patience, hundreds of hours on the phone, 
I don't know how you're always there to pick up the phone when there's so much else going on in your life. But um, thank you for writing this book. It feels like an explanation of something that you always half knew um, but understand more fully um, at the end of this piece of work. So thank you for undertaking it and persisting. And um, my pulse is only just receding from the sections of the book where you're having to transcribe all your shorthand notes for some <laughs> demented defence request. The idea of transcribing my own shorthand gives me the absolute heaves. So uh, full power to you for actually doing that, mate. And thank you very much for um, talking about your wonderful book tonight, Louise. Well, thank you. There is I can't really think of anyone else that I'd rather talk to um, about it um, and that's why I sort of asked you because you've got such a big heart as well. So now we're all just going to turn into emotional fools. <laughs> I think and thank you to everyone from, for, for coming along. I think that then I'm going to speak for everyone here in the community hall that's applauding both of you and saying, please, please don't stop. Just don't stop. Uh, Louise, thank you from the bottom of Australia's collective heart. And to you, Annabelle. Annabelle Everywhere Crab, thank God. <laughs> thank God for you. Good night, everybody. Take care. Keep reading. It's important. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you could sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Thank you.